All right. Well, you know what? We want to just follow on to what we've been doing. We've been in the book of James. And uh, I know we have several newcomers here today. And so for those of you who aren't familiar with James, James was the, the stated brother of Jesus, which could mean a lot of things in the original languages. But at any rate, he had a very close relationship with Jesus. And after the crucifixion, James is the one who took over for the Jerusalem church and the first Jewish followers of Jesus for 30 years until he was killed by the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the, uh, of the Jewish people as a martyr. And he probably was the one who taught most like Jesus. When we look at the epistles, we look at the letters in the New Testament, when you look at James, man, you're just seeing a clone of Jesus. He, you know, the apple didn't fall far from that tree there. They, they, they really use a lot of the same imagery. And they're both very Jewish in terms of the way that they teach. And so if we're going to understand Jesus and if we're going to understand James, what we've been doing is approaching the book, Jesus and James, from a first century Hebrew point of view. And it, it changes so much. And you're going to see that this morning. The passages that we read, when we look at them from a typically Western point of view, you know, a, 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 an American point of view, a Western Christian point of view, through that legal lens, it's going to look one way. It's going to look really harsh. It's look like a bunch of rules coming down on us. But when you turn it around and look at through that, that eastern lens, everything changes. And, and that's what we want to do because we're really trying to understand what this good news is all about. What is this good news if it's just a bunch more rules to follow? What is this good news if God is still an angry God who is looking for ways to be able to not let us into his favor, not accept us into his presence? Last week we started with a, um, a line that's at the top of your bulletins and wanted to put it up there again because it is so pivotal to me in terms of trying to understand this good news of Jesus. What if heaven, defined as God's acceptance of us, is not the end of our journey, but the beginning of our journey? Now that would be really good news. Now think about that for a second. We have been raised and taught, both by our, our families of origin, our parents, our teachers, our churches, society itself, that we are an incomplete person, that there's something that we need, we have to import, we have to acquire, we have to obtain in order to be complete, in order to be good enough, in order to meet a standard of approval, not only by our peers and our family, but also by God. And so we're on that hamster wheel, constantly trying to get to heaven, to be good enough for heaven. And even though, yes, we say that we're saved by grace so that none may boast, the reality of the matter is we're still on that hamster wheel. We are still looking for something that will make us acceptable in God's eyes. But what if that level of acceptance, that fulfillment, that abundant life that Jesus talks about is not coming at the end of our journey, but it's here right now. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to tell us. With all of his word pictures and stories and parables, his life, the way that he related to people, he's telling us it's all right here. He said specifically, the kingdom is not out there someplace. You're not going to find it by observation. Luke 17. It's entos in Greek which means within, among, in the midst of, all at the same time. Or in his own language, Aramaic, it's like amen, which literally means moving dynamically from inside to outside. We're not going to conform our way into kingdom. It's not an outside-in type of proposition. It's always inside out. And this is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. We need to take the whole worldview that we have about life and turn it around 180 degrees. That's why so many of his sayings are so paradoxical, trying to get us to do that, trying to get us to understand that everything we need is already here. It's not out there someplace. You remember Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz? I love that movie. And some of you who are old enough to remember, they only showed it once a year on television, remember? Every year, same time, a little black and white, you know, eight-inch screen that we had. My sister and I getting popcorn, getting down to watch the flying monkeys. But here's the thing. Dorothy is pining. She is longing for something over the rainbow that's going to fulfill her life because she's in black and white Kansas and it's just not doing it for her. Right? 
But when she gets to Oz, when she gets to full color, and when she meets all of the strange creatures and people and, and tasks and things that she has to do, when she finally brings back the broomstick of the Wicked Witch, and when she finally realizes that the wizard can't take her home anyway, that everything she needed was already on her feet. She had the ruby slippers. She could go home anytime she wanted to. But she had to figure out how they worked. I always remember the scarecrow saying that was always the most frustrating part of the movie. Well, why didn't you just tell her? You know? Well, yeah. Because she wouldn't have believed me. She had to find out for herself. This is every person's journey. You're all wearing ruby slippers. Look down. See? They're there. But nobody can tell you how they work. That's what you have to find out for yourself. And when she finally gets home again to black and white Kansas and she's looking at that same ring of faces, what does she say? Next time I go looking for my heart's desire, I'm not going to look any further than my own backyard. Because if it's not there, I never really lost it to begin with. Why do stories like The Wizard of Oz have such meaning and such depth for us? Why will that story be retold for as long as there are children in our midst? Because it is the exact analog of this spiritual journey we're taking. This psychological journey, this emotional journey, this journey from birth to death and everything in between. It's the same story that Jesus is trying to tell us. It's not out there someplace. It's right here. It's within. It's in your midst. We have to get this. If we could just get this one concept radically down deep, it would change everything. It would change everything about the way that we approach life. Because what if life is not about acquisition? At all. How much of your time is spent trying to acquire things? What if it's not about that? What if it's about simply revealing what is already here? Very different proposition. Very different way about going through life. And James is trying to tell us the same thing. I know we read this last week, but just to get a little bit of a running start, if we look at James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, Pure. Now, we would say integrated. See, but the Hebrews, it's huge to have an integration between the inner community and the outer community as they saw it. In the program, we talk about the inner committee, don't we? The committee inside and the committee outside. Integration. They're saying the same thing. They are the same thing. There's no difference between the two. Last week when James was talking about the tongue being such an important part of the body, as small as it was, the far-reaching effects that it had, because it revealed what was inside. It revealed whether there was integrity, inner integrity or not, by what came out. So this wisdom, he says, from above, first is pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, again, integrated, right? And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what he's saying is like breeds like. Jesus said this over and over again. You know, you're not going to get olives from fig trees. You're not going to get figs from thistles. Like breeds like. Integration, once again. We talked about last week. The means that we use must match the ends that we seek. And we could probably tag on to that. Because the means that we use always match the ends that we produce, don't they? Think about that. Remember that deal from, was it Seinfeld? Serenity now! <laughs> you know, serenity now. You're not going to get it from a place of anxiety and stress and anger and frustration. If you want to be unified, if you want to feel the peace, then you start having to act peaceful and unified. And that sounds like a catch-22 to us. But it's not. If the thing that we're trying to embody, manifest, realize in our life is not out there to be acquired, but is already right here and just needs to be revealed. That's very different. Changes the whole equation. No longer a catch-22. We can act as if. We can choose as if. These things are already present. Because they are. 
They're just covered over with a lot of other stuff right now. And this is what Jesus is also trying to get across. You know, there's a saying that is attributed to Gandhi, but he didn't actually say it. That happens a lot, you know. You've probably heard this one. Be the change that you want to see in the world. Now, he said something like that, but he didn't actually say that. But you know, it's not bad. Whatever change it is you want to see, where do you start? Where do you actually have even the power to choose anything at all? Well, it's not in Washington, D.C., for crying out loud. It's not Sacramento. It's not even San Juan City Hall. It's right here, right now. You know that better than anybody, don't you, Steve? You can't fight City Hall. Although we've been trying to do that here for some time. Just get some permits. And so this is the thing here. This is what's going on. You know? Be the change that you wish to see in the world. Start here. Faith, understood as action, is the key. Living as if something is already true. That's what faith is. Living as if what you say you believe is already true. Not waiting for a proof. That's not faith. Faith is the action. Belief is idea only. Faith is the action that connects the idea to trust, which is the experience. And trust is where we need to go. Because there will not be any lessening of your fear in life until you actually start to trust that there really is good news. That you're really going to survive this thing at the end of your life. Right? That's it. That's where we're going with all this. When I'm counseling couples, sometimes I tell them because I can see that they're both in their trenches. You know, kind of like the frozen Western Front in World War I. They're in their trenches, and if you stick your head up, you might likely even get it shot off. So they're down in their trenches, and they're just holding up. You know, and nobody's going to be the first one to stick their head up and get that thing shot off, let alone start to crawl out across no man's land to the other side and the other trench. And I said, like, where do you go from there? Who's going to be the first one? Be the spouse you want your spouse to be. How about that? You know? Choose as if the relationship were already what you want it to be. Live as if that were true. And it's your best chance for realizing that it can be. Yes, you have the other person who's got to make the same choice. But your worldview will change as you live as if. And that's what this is all about. It's not about following rules. It's not about obedience. We've been hammering that over and over again. It is so important for us to understand. You can't follow rules into kingdom. You cannot follow rules into heaven. It's impossible. There's a whole different aspect at work here. Take a look as James continues. He follows on with this thought. Chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Okay, now... Letters, epistles are letters. And letters address issues. It was a big deal to write a letter in the ancient world. It was expensive. You know, there wasn't, you just didn't go to Staples and buy some paper and type it out and print it. You couldn't even just write it with a pen. The only materials for writing, paper wasn't invented yet in the first century. These were animal skins. It was papyrus, which was laboriously created out of reeds, marsh reeds, and, and uh, low-lying levels. And, and inks were made out of animal secretions and, and shellfish and all sorts of crazy stuff. It was a difficult thing to write a letter. You wrote a letter if you needed to write a letter. You wrote a letter to address a certain problem. There is a problem here in this community that James is addressing. So there are quarrels and conflicts. There's something going on, and he's trying to teach them. How do you deal with it? But like a Jeopardy game, we only get the answers and not the questions, because we're not going to restate the problem. Everybody knows what the problem is. But what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasure, your pleasures that wage war in your members? So he's saying, the source of all these quarrels is your pleasures. Right? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Okay, now that sounds pretty harsh. That sounds pretty damning there, doesn't it? If we don't take this and then turn it around and start to look at it from a... Hebrew point of view. We're going to miss what's really going on here. And what I want to do is just read you a parallel passage from Jesus' teaching so you can hear. Jesus puts in a key phrase 
that James leaves out because by James' time, everybody knew. It's kind of like me saying, is it legal to drink, um, is it legal for a 21-year-old to drink in the state of California? Let me put that a different way. Is it legal for someone under 21 to drink in California? And you would say, no. Water? <laughs> See, we automatically put in alcoholic beverages because we know the context of the question. If James says, you do not have because you do not ask, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, there's a key phrase there, in my name, that is left out. Because by this time, everybody knows that it's there. Jesus, at John 16, in that day, which day? The day that I come back to you. This is when they're all freaking out because he's telling them that he's going to the cross. He's telling them that he's not going to be physically with them anymore. But he says, when I come back, on that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy will be made full. He adds that critical piece, in my name. doesn't really make any sense in James, just written the way it is. And it leaves us open to all sorts of crazy interpretations, ones that go too far. The whole name it and claim it thing, and, and you know, I want to be gentle here for any of you who feel that way, but it's not just about naming something and claiming it. Or if we just tack in Jesus' name on the end of a prayer like we do. I do. We all do. But it's not a superstitious just mantra that we say. In Jesus' name, we just say those words and somehow magically they're going to make all our dreams come true. That's, that's not what this is about at all. The word for name in Hebrew is Shem. And Shem means name. But really, if you go back to its roots, what it really means is light or sound. It's the essence or character of something. It's the, it's the smallest integral part of something. And then extending outward, it's the outward appearance of something that points to the inner essence or character, which is exactly what a name functioned as in the Hebrew language. Not so much in ours. We choose babies' names because we like the sound of them. But a Hebrew name was always significant. It meant something. And it pointed to the inner character, the inner essence. So Jesus is saying, if you ask my Father for something in my essence, in my character, in my reputation, in other words, if you ask the Father exactly the same thing that I would ask, isn't that the definition of an answered prayer? You have not done this, he says. You haven't asked in my name. In other words, you're not living your lives the way I live my lives, and so your prayers are not going where you want them to go yet because you're not living this life as I live it. How did Jesus live it? He lived it as if the Father's love was really perfect. He lived it as if the Father was really already present as if kingdom, which is the connection, the quality of life that we can have when we're connected to that presence, were already here and now and within. He lived that way. He chose that way. He loved that way. He related that way. And he says, if you will live that way, pray that way, then the same thing is going to happen to you. And James says, if you pray with wrong motives, it's not going to be answered. What are the wrong motives? Wrong motives are fear-based motives. Wrong motives are motives that are based in the need to acquire something that we think we need to be whole. So many of our prayers are petitionary. Our petitionary prayers are trying to feed that black hole within ourselves. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way it works. You don't have a black hole within yourself. You've taught yourself that you do. Others have taught that you do. But really what's in there is the presence of my Father, the presence of Spirit. And if you could just uncover all this stuff you'll find that that's true. And when you pray, ask for things that you are already living as if they were true, that's an answered prayer. Jesus is trying to get us to understand this. Remember last week I told you the story about the woman and her dog? Yeah. Actually, it was a woman and her husband's dog. She was trying to blend the family. She had two kids. He had the big black lab and they were trying to blend the family and the dog was just wreaking havoc and she really didn't like this dog. In fact, Steve asked me, was that really a true story or did you just make that up? <laughs> it was a real story. Yeah. But what she did was, she decided to give the dog a shower. She got into the shower with him 
And by bonding with the dog, and the dog loved the shower so much, and she began, she started to live as if she really had a relationship with that dog, and guess what she did? I had a friend, there was a woman at work that she just could not stand. All she had to do, the other woman, was walk around the, the corner of the cube farm, and her blood pressure went up 20 points, you know, just something about her. And she had a choice. She could act on those feelings, you know, those negative feelings about this woman, keep her distance, or she could go the other way, which she did, killed her with kindness, and now they're best friends. It does work that way. You ever notice how people, when you first meet, you know, they might be a little odd looking, but they get cuter as you get to know them better? Have you ever noticed that? They really do. It's like all that stuff just kind of goes away because you start to see the inner person if you will just give them a chance. Give them a chance. Act as if they're a beautiful person and then you find out they really are. Most people are. This is what James is trying to get across to us. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. If you can just make that turn. You know, choose as if. At John 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, in my Shem, my character, I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Which is basically the exact same statement. To keep Jesus' commandments is to pray in his name. Because you're praying in his character, you're praying in his essence the way that he would live. Mark 11, 24, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray, ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Now does that mean I just believe that I'll receive, because that's starting to sound like name and claim it again. But remember, in the ancient languages, belief is never separated from trust. If you really want to get to the essence of what's going on here, anytime you see the word belief or faith in the New Testament, substitute the word trust, and you'll get a lot closer to what's going on here. Jesus is saying, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, have trust. Or first, I guess, have faith. Choose as if they are already present in your life. And they will be granted to you. You'll find out that they are. It's the same concept. At Matthew 7, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. We've gone through this before, but just very quickly. To ask selu, which is related to selah, which is to pray, which is to incline toward, to wait expectantly for something to happen, to clear a space. It's a hunting term. You know, clear a space, set a trap, retreat into the blind, wait expectantly for something to happen. Selah is pray. Selu is to ask, but with that same cleared space, that same intensity. It's more like a police interrogation. You know, you're really, really intent on getting this answer. It calls up the idea of desire. That you want something so bad you can taste it. And then to seek, bayah, is to search diligently, again, from inside to outside. Not out there someplace. In here. Uncover, find out what's there. Let it then permeate out and change the way that you choose and the way that you relate. Knock, kosh, which is really an interesting word because it means literally to strike a note or to hammer a tent peg. We think, what does that have to do with knocking? Well, it's a sound. But more importantly, to strike a note is to actually put it out there in the vibrations where other people can hear it. To put a tent peg down to build a tent is to create a space in which people can actually live. It's to make something manifest. To knock is to make it manifest. And so with the desire that starts the asking to the deep search that goes from inside to outside and then it's manifest in your life, Jesus is giving us a three-step way of actually making manifest these kingdom principles in our lives. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. See how this is starting to work. Look where James follows at verse 4. He starts to lay back into the people again. There must have really been something going on in this community. You adulteresses! Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Quote, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this sounds really harsh. 
But really what he's restating is what Jesus said at Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and wealth, God and mammon. And mammon has to be opened up. It's whatever we pile up in our lives that comes to define us. It can be anything that we cling to, that we identify with, that is the source of our illusion of power and control. Nobody can serve two masters. This is the same thing that James is trying to tell us here. At Matthew 12, Jesus says, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, cannot stand. And any city or house divided against itself itself will not stand. So these terms that James is using to illustrate exactly what Jesus is talking about needs a little bit of kind of translation, I suppose. This idea of the enemy, the enemy of God if you're not in friendship with God, the enemy, Be'el de Baba in, in uh, Aramaic. I should love saying that word, Be'el de Baba. <coughs> Sounds like a door should be opening sometimes. <laughs> but it does mean someone who is different than you. Someone that you don't get. Someone who is not of your kin. Someone who stands outside of your culture, your ethics. It's someone that is not in close connection with you. And so that's what it's, he's saying here. If you continue to live this way, and the world is a metaphor for this, this system of acquisition, this system of material things that we think that we need and we're constantly on that hamster wheel, if you're involved in that, then you are not in kinship with God because God is not of that ilk. There's a whole different way of approaching life that God is about that starts from abundance and not from a place of need. And so it's not that God is withholding it's not that God is keeping you out. It's different than that. It's that you cannot see what God is about as long as you are in that space, in that headspace. That's what he's talking about. This idea of adulterous that he calls them, this goes back to the basic imagery that Israel always had of the nation of Israel being the bride of Yahweh. Later on, that was brought forward to the church where the church was the bride of Christ. And so to go aside from that image of what a true marital relationship is all about is what he's trying to get them to understand. You've been brought in to the very family of God. You are this bride, you are this spouse of God, and yet you can't keep going out and seeking after all this stuff out there, which makes you unable to sit at table, which makes you unable to have relationship with. You know, turn around, come back. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. Now, Jesus isn't saying that I'm against them. Jesus is love. The Father is love. Love is the only means by which we can realize a love relationship, by which we can finally get to this experience of perfect love, which is the only thing that really drives out the fear. So, those of us who are still living in fear are not going to experience this love this Father, this Jesus, this Kingdom, this Heaven. We're not being excluded by Jesus, by the Father. We just won't see it. And if we see it, we won't value it. We won't go after it. We won't have that desire, that selu, that's going to take us on that journey. This idea of a jealous God. Our idea of jealousy is that we're angry at the object of our jealousy. And so we think God is angry at us because we are now adulterating. We're moving aside. But this is another Hebrew idiomatic phrase. It's so important to get that a jealous God is not an angry God. A jealous God to a Hebrew is a protective God. One who protects. The ken is the nest. And this is the way that the, the Jews understood that God didn't so much create the world, he built the world. The way that an eagle would build a nest for the nestlings and they understood the world and everything in it as being this perfect nurturing place for we as humans, we as the nestlings, which is also Ken. Ken is the nest and the nestlings to be able to live and to grow and everything was there that we need in order to become full-fledged people, human beings, part of God's family. And so the Kana is the builder. 
God is the builder, and Kana is the jealous part. But it's understood as the eagle would jealously guard against any predators that would harm the nestlings. That's directed outward, protecting the nestlings, protecting us. So when James talks about jealous God, he's talking about it in that sense. God is jealously protecting us from anything that might take us away, distract us, move us in other directions. James says that God is opposed to the proud. Again, does that mean that God is angry, withholding grace from those who don't measure up to certain standards? And from a human point of view, it looks that way. When we get off in our sidetracks, we feel a million miles away from God. We feel distant from God. It feels that God has turned his face from us. And those very words are used over and over again, especially in the Psalms and the Old Testament. It feels as if God has left the building. But in all of the scripture also says that God will never leave or forsake us. So which is true? From a human point of view, it feels as if. But from God's point of view, it never happens because God is grace. There's no withholding here. God is that thing we call grace, is that thing we call love, forgiveness, deliverance. When we approach him, that's what we get because there's nothing else there in God that isn't based in love, isn't love itself. Pride is fear. And as soon as we're back on the fear wheel, we cannot see or value love. That's the way it works. Connection with grace is only possible when we finally enter into a Talia relationship, the childlike relationship that Jesus always holds up as an emblem of kingdom. When we become like a child, we realize our own dependence. We realize and, and celebrate our own vulnerability. When we can see things first as we saw them as children and wonder in them and take delight in them again. And Talia doesn't just mean child, but it also means bond servant or domestic slave. When we put the two together, because what the child doesn't have is a choice. The child just is what the child is, right? Until it gets old enough to be an adult. But the slave has a choice. And so that voluntary submission, that voluntary humility, that service, married with everything the child is, is what Jesus is talking about. You won't see kingdom until you enter into that space. First step stuff, right? First step of the 12 steps. The minute we were powerless, that our lives were unmanageable, it's the same kind of space that we're talking about here. That is the beginning and the ground of any change that's going to take place going forward. James continues at verse 7. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Ew, I don't like that one. <laughs> but once again, looking at it from a Hebrew point of view, it's going to change. He starts out with submit. What's what we're talking about? Submit as Talia, submit. Submit as the servant submits. Celebrate your vulnerability and dependence the way a child does. Resist the devil. What's the devil? The devil here is the fear-based worldview that we're talking about. And or that spiritual being who continues to engender fear in us that continues to create that fear-based worldview that will keep us from seeing all that God is right here and right now. So he's telling us to do this, submit. But how do we do that? He gives us four ways here. The first one is to draw near. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. So is that conditional? Jesus says, forgive your brother, because if you do, then your Father in Heaven will forgive you. But if you don't forgive, then neither will your Father in Heaven can forgive you. Is that conditional? I thought God's grace was supposed to be free, not based on my performance. But see, this is the Hebrew way of speaking. And what they're really saying is simply stating a fact. If you can't forgive, understood as freeing yourself from your own resentments and sense of victimhood, then you'll never understand how completely forgiven you already are. We're as forgiven as we want to be. But until we learn to forgive, until we can feel that resentment just dissipating, falling away from us, we can't understand the freedom that is really there. And this idea of drawing near to God, God is already as near as God could possibly be. He's within us. 
among us, in the midst of us. He is nearer to us than our next breath or heartbeat. But if we don't draw near to Him, if we don't make ourselves present, if we don't clear out all that junk that's constantly spinning in our heads, we're never, ever going to know that. Experience that. Let alone become trusting in that God is always there. That will never leave us or forsake us. That's the idea here behind this. God is already near, but it's a Hebrew way of speaking. We need to make that leap. We need to stick our heads up out of the trench and crawl across no man's land so that we can realize that God is already there. And we take that journey the way Dorothy did to realize we don't have to take the journey, but we have to do it just to understand. He talks about cleansing your hands and purifying your heart, and this speaks to two stages of growth. From a Hebrew point of view, the heart, the Levah, was the seat of all desire and intent, and the hands were the things that carried out that intent. So Jesus says, first, start it backwards. Because how do you change the intent of your heart? Well, the first thing you do, like we teach addicts and alcoholics, fake it till you make it, right? Stop grasping for the things that are feeding that wrong, fear-based worldview, heart that is inside of you. Stop that activity. Kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Stop the activity and it's going to take you back to a renewed heart. It's a way of going about this. This is how we're going to get. So stop that sinful action. Conform for a while so that you can move into that heart space that looks like God and then you transform from the inside out. Now this great one. Be miserable. Mourn. (laughs) So does that mean to realize our sinful state? We talked about that pastor that that Frank was talking about. He looks in the mirror and sees how ugly and horrible he is as a sinner. And a lot of commentaries will tell you that, but I don't really think that's what's going on here. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What James is trying to do is restate what, what Jesus is talking about here. If we aren't willing to risk loss, then we will never become present. When we become present to something, when we fall in love with something, whether it's a dog, or whether it's a child, or whether it's our husband or wife, or just our job, our cause, our church, we have given that other the permission to hurt us. Because if we lose that thing, it's going to take us into a stage of grief, the cycle of grief. But imagine a life that never mourns. Imagine a life that never goes through grief. One that is so defended that there never are true, authentic relationships. Blessed are those who mourn. Because they have something to mourn. They really had relationship. And the loss of that is felt keenly. But this is what James is trying to tap into. In order for us to be able to be exalted, we first have to allow ourselves to be humbled. We have to go into that place that is sometimes called the dark night of the soul, if you've heard that phrase before. In the Paschal mystery of Jesus that's coming up here uh, in, the, in the last week before Easter, he suffers, he goes to death, and goes into the grave, and then he comes back up again. That shape of going down, descending before you ascend, is a motif that runs over and over and over again. Jesus' time in the wilderness was a descent before the ascent. And it was difficult and it was disturbing and he was pushed to his limits. This is what James is talking about here. Not that we're not supposed to have fun. Not that we're not supposed to enjoy our lives. But we're supposed to live our lives in such a way that there is a balance between the two. And we recognize the importance of going down into the dark place and stripping away everything. Again, that first step, to admit that you're powerless to let go of the pride, to let go of the source of control that you've been hanging onto all your life, feels like a death. You mourn that loss. But if you don't do it, you can never get out to the other side to find out what really is going on in life, where the real source of power is in life. You have to experience that mourning first, that death first, that grief first, that descent first. That's the way that this works. This is what he's trying to get across to us. And then analogous to that, humble yourselves so that you may be exalted. 
Jesus stated this paradoxical way of living life over and over again. It's the exact opposite of our way, our worldview, where we're always striving to obtain. We want the graph to always be on an upswing, right? Never want it to go the other way. Why would we work down the ladder of success in order to work up the ladder of success? See, we don't get this. But this is what Jesus is trying to get across. This is what James is trying to get across. And I wanted to read a little bit, a little passage from a completely different tradition. This is from Chinese tradition. And when I do this sometimes, people ask, why are you going outside? Well, I don't read anything from another tradition unless it's saying what Jesus says. But sometimes when you read something in someone else's words from a very different worldview and point of view, it just really brings things alive. And for me, this works, and I hope it works for you. If not, it will only hurt for about five minutes. (laughs) This is from the writings of Chang Su. Chang Su lived about the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE. So that's like 350 years before Jesus in China. He writes, Is there to be found on earth a fullness of joy? Or is there no such thing? Is there some way to make life fully worth living? Or is this impossible? If there is such a way, how do you go about finding it? What should you try to do? What should you seek to avoid? What should be the good, the goal, in which your activity comes to rest? What should you accept? What should you refuse to accept? What should you love? What should you hate? What the world values is money, reputation, long life, achievement. What it counts as joy is health and comfort of body, good food, fine clothes, beautiful things to look at, pleasant music to listen to. What it condemns is lack of money, a low social rank, a reputation for being no good, and an early death. What it considers misfortune is bodily discomfort and labor, no chance to get your fill of good food, not having good clothes to wear, having no way to amuse or delight the eye, no pleasant music to listen to. If people find they are deprived of these things, they go into a panic or fall into a despair. They are so concerned for their life that their anxiety makes life unbearable, even when they have the things that they think they want. The very concern for enjoyment makes them unhappy. The rich make life intolerable, driving themselves in order to get more and more money, which they cannot really use. And in so doing, they are alienated from themselves and exhaust themselves in their own service as if they were slaves of others. The ambitious run day and night in pursuit of honors, constantly in anguish about the success of their plans, dreading the miscalculation that may wreck everything. Thus they are alienated from themselves, exhausting their real life in service for the shadow created by their insatiable hope. The birth of a man is the birth of his sorrows. The longer he lives, the more stupid he becomes because his anxiety to avoid unavoidable death becomes more and more acute. What bitterness. He lives for what is always out of reach. His thirst for survival in the future makes him incapable of living in the present. This was written 2,300 years ago. It could have been written yesterday. Isn't that amazing? I love this about literature. People don't change. The only thing that changes is technology. But people are the same. The way we live our lives, the things that, 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 that afflict us and affect us and, and draw us are, are so much the same. I cannot tell if the world considers happiness. I cannot tell if what the world considers happiness is happiness or not. All I know is that when I consider the way they go about attaining it, I see them carried away headlong, grim and obsessed in the general onrush of the human herd, unable to stop themselves or to change their direction, all the while they claim to be just on the point of attaining happiness. For my part, I cannot accept their standards, whether of happiness or unhappiness. I ask myself if all their concept of happiness is anything or any meaning, whatever. My opinion is that you never find happiness until you stop looking for it. My greatest happiness consists precisely in doing nothing whatever that is calculated to obtain happiness. And this, in the minds of most people, is the worst possible course. I will hold to the saying that perfect joy is to be without joy. Perfect praise is to be without praise. 
And that sounds a little weird, but what did Jesus say? If you want to find your life, lose it. If you ask what ought to be done and what ought not to be done on earth in order to produce happiness, I answer that these questions do not have an answer. There is no way of determining such things. Yet at the same time, if I cease striving for happiness, the right and the wrong at once become apparent all by themselves. Why should that be so? If I cease striving for happiness, right and wrong, wrong become apparent. Why? Because suddenly there's no more conflict of interest that is driving your choices one way or another. You can see clearly what needs to be done. You no longer focus on the outcome that takes you away from the present moment, where if you were really here, you could see it clearly. To let go of the need for something out there that your choices just become a means to that end, a means that don't match that end, you're never going to get there. This is what Chuang Tzu is saying. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what James is saying. Contentment and well-being at once become possible the moment you cease to act with them in view. That should be on our refrigerators. <laughs> Contentment and well-being at once become possible the moment you cease to act with them in view. And if you practice non-doing, Wu Wei in his language, you will have both happiness and well-being. This is how I sum it up. Heaven does nothing. Its non-doing is its serenity. Earth does nothing. Its non-doing is its rest. From the union of these two non-doings, all actions proceed. All things are made. How vast, how invisible is coming to be. All things come from nowhere. How vast, how invisible. No way to explain it. All beings in their perfection are born of non-doing. Hence it is said, heaven and earth do nothing, yet there is nothing they do not do. Where is the man who can attain to this non-doing? If you persist in trying to attain what is never attained, it is God's gift. If you persist in making effort to obtain what effort cannot get, if you persist in reasoning about what cannot be understood, you will be destroyed by the very thing you seek. To know when to stop. To know when you can get no further by your own action. This is a right beginning. See, all the striving that we do can only take us to the precipice. Now, that's okay, because at the precipice we actually can change. We can decide whether we're going to jump or not. It's kind of an all-or-nothing sort of deal. When you get up to the edge and you're looking down into the abyss, you can try to shrink back. But if you do, you'll never experience the falling. you never experience what it means to actually move into a relationship as radical as the perfect love that Jesus has for us in kingdom. It's all or nothing. You can let fall, or you can hang on. Ever see a child afraid to jump into a pool? Mm-hmm. Just run back and run up and look. We're like that, aren't we? At the point of decision, trying to figure things out. What we don't get is that kingdom and heaven is like falling in love. You can't reason it out. You can't figure it out. How do you know you're in love? Well, no one told you. No one had to tell you, right? It changes everything about the way that you look at life. The colors change. Things taste different. Everything changes. It's not anything you really did. It's something you stepped into. You're not obeying in love. It's funny, last Wednesday night, Frank used an illustration, and as I was reading my notes from five years ago when I first did the series, I realized I used the same illustration. We're talking about falling in love. Frank said, what if you could have a book about falling in love? It told you exactly what to do. You know, I don't know, what would the book say? You know, look longingly into a person's eyes. Buy flowers, hold hands, you know, take a walk on the beach. Um, I don't know, where do you go from there? And if you did all these things, and it's kind of like one of those paint-by-numbers, you ever do a paint-by-numbers thing? You, know, you, you put the yellow here and this number, and you put the chartreuse over here, and at the end, if you stand far enough away, like a, about half a mile, and you squint, you can actually see the Lord's Supper, or whatever it is that you painted. The sad thing is, we're trying to live our love life like a paint-by-numbers painting. Like we're reading it out of a book. We're trying to follow the rules. We're trying to follow law. We're trying to do everything right so that we can be in this love relationship with God. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. How could it possibly? How could it possibly? 
How could it be? Kingdom is love. Obedience is fear. Until we move from fear to love, we'll never see the kingdom. They are different qualities. We cannot use fear to get to love. The ends, the means that we use must match the ends that we seek. We just need to fall. Love sneaks up on us, hits us over the head. And once we've fallen, we know exactly what to do. And then we're not obeying anymore. We are now living in Jesus' name, His Shem, His essence, His character. And everything that flows out of us would be as if it was flowing out of Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus meant when He said, I'm one with the Father, and everything I do is what the Father does through me. Submitting to God is like falling in love. We're not going to feel humiliated. We're not going to feel like there was this big loss. In fact, nothing worth having is ever lost when we lose ourselves in God. There is no risk, really, but it feels like risk. Let go. Stop trying. Let yourself fall in love. And each moment, we fall with each other as if there really is a soft landing. We'll experience more and more that there is. Let's pray. Father, you are our soft landing. You're a safety net. You're the lottery ticket in our back pockets. You are everything that can be had right here and right now. Help us to get the first glimpse of what that really means. Help us to be willing to take the first risk-filled steps toward the experience that will change everything. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, Lord. We can just express our gratitude and our amazement that you do. But you do. Let that change everything about the way that we live our lives. Help us to live as if your good news is really good. And let those chips fall where they may. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. We can only love because you love us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's all stand.